0: The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Surgeon's general warning today. You may not like what you hear today. It is going to be a hard pill to swallow. And if you decide to swallow it, I can promise you that there will be side effects. You know those commercials, and then they list off, like, the length of your arm, the amount of different side effects that you wanted to cure one thing by. Today, there will be different things. There will be stuff, side effects, including mild discomfort, extreme discomfort, being ostracized, mockery, rejection, pain, suffering, death, and in some cases, diarrhea. Um, Let's read our passage. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Man, I'm, all, I'm so sorry. I'm a, a little disjointed. All right. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray this morning in our weakness in our rebellion Lord we declare that we need you oh God we need you we need you so bad Lord may you come and be with us today that we might surrender our hearts over to you to work on to mold to shape to clean to break stone and make them Hearts of flesh. May you open our our blind eyes to see. May your spirit's work be so much so that we would end up obeying instead of turning away. Give us faith and repentance, Father, and open our eyes to see who you are and what it means to be one that follows you. We love you, Jesus, in your name. For those that have not been here, maybe, or just to catch us back up a little, we were in communion last, last Sunday, we're back into Mark 8, we've been working through Mark 8. Uh, today we'll be going through 8.34 to 9.1. And just up front, I don't know if, is Aaron Shellhart here? Shellhart's here. We talked a little about this. Why in the world didn't you stop, Chris, Mr. Chris, was very polite, why didn't you stop at you know, at the end of chapter 8, why are we going into chapter 9? Well, you know, what's that one verse about? Just quickly, just to begin, it's a great question. First of all, Jesus and the disciples and the prophets did not put little numbers at the beginning of each of their statements. That was not them. There have been men throughout history, and they, they didn't write the Bible. They helped categorize it and put it in verses and sections so we could go after and look, and we could reference something. and makes it easier to find and flip through the 66 different books that we deal with. So, that being said, sometimes the guy who decided to split that right there didn't do maybe the exact right thing. Maybe he should have done it the next verse down. However, it doesn't change that it's the Word of God. It doesn't change that it's authoritative. and It doesn't change the fact that we need to listen. So, that being said, we're going to 9-1. It's not just because I'm, like, breaking the mold. (laughs) It's it's important that this section ends. It goes from 34 down to 9-1. That's where we're going to be spending our time today. So... uh, it's very important that we read like we do, and Stacy's done this for years now, we read the whole section that we're dealing with instead of just the small couple of verses that we're talking about today. This is really important because none of these things happen like in a silo, by themselves, like independent of all the rest of the things that have happened. Mark is no dummy. He, he puts all this stuff in a perspective, in a, in a very purposeful order in a story format. And we ought not then to be dummies either. We ought not to pull out stuff and just talk about that. We remember that this is in a larger section of Scripture. So let me give us just a quick bring back to see where we're at. It's very important that you remember a few things. Now we're going back to a little while ago here. Remember the blind man and him being healed in stages. That's very important. Remember we talked about that lesson. What's that about? We talked about that there's something bigger there. Remember Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember that Jesus warns his disciples not to say anything about this. Remember that Jesus is telling his followers that he will be rejected and suffer and be killed. And what does Peter do? Peter rebukes him. No, 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 Lord. Jesus turns back, remember, and says, no, and he rebukes him. You're not thinking, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking on the things of God, but the things of man. Kind of like, you don't get it, Peter. This is my plan, not your plan. This is where we come in. It is in the midst of the disciples not understanding, not getting it, this how in the world the Messiah could be a suffering, rejected, murdered Messiah. This is is where we're at. And now Jesus is moving on, and he's going to tell us some new things. So the structure. I've been giving you a little bit of structure. There's four points here. If you write stuff down, these are the four points. It's a little bit more complex than what we've seen before, but this does not mean it's really complex. It's just a little more involved. The first thing is that all these parts, just four parts, all these parts support one main idea, and it's the first one. The question is, what does it mean then, this is what it means to be the Messiah, what does it mean to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus? Last week we heard from Jesus what it meant to be the Messiah. But this week, We're going to learn from him what it means to be a disciple of his. So let me give you the structure. Number one, discipleship demands what he demands if you're going to be his disciple. Number two, why we should fulfill these demands. That's verse 35 and 37. The first one's 34, by the way. Number three, what will happen if we don't fulfill these demands? This is in verse 38. And then, bleeding over into chapter 9, the last thing, number four, what will happen if we do fulfill these demands? What will happen? What does it look like? So let's get started. Verse 34 And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, note that uh, Mark is doing something kind of peculiar here. What, does anyone realize who he's addressing here? Who, who has he been addressing? Let's, this is not a trick question. Who has he, he been talking to and teaching? The disciples, his 12 disciples. Now, what? Now what's happening? What's the first thing we notice about verse 34? And calling the crowd, goodness, I thought we were done with these people. You know, isn't it time where we kind of turn and we're doing that? Well, he's not quite done with them. And there's a very specific purpose for bringing the crowd into this conversation. This teaching is not for Jesus' 12 elite disciples, like the disciples with the big D, you know, D unit, you know, like those guys. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about the disciples of Jesus, we're talking about all men that would follow Jesus Christ. That's who we're talking about here. So he turns to the crowd to speak to all of them to say, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, this is what it's going to be like. So this is for you, for me. We should hear him reaching or see him reaching through the millennia to speak to us. This is us. This is not just the 12 special guys, which we know is not true. They're not, just not special any, more than us anyway. So, we're not quite done with the crowd. We realize why. These are demands for anyone who wishes to be a disciple, for everyone. He says three things. If you want to be on the Messianic team, there's three parts to this. You need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross. And you need to follow me. Let's talk through these for a minute. Deny yourself. A lot of us think that perhaps he left off the rest of the sentence. Like, he missed two words. Like... Deny yourself food, or deny yourself happiness, or deny yourself pleasure and comfort, and deny yourself, um, you know, what have you. Earthly possessions. But he didn't. Very pointed. Deny yourself. Deny what is at your very core. Deny what keeps you alive. Deny what is often the true motivation for everything that we do. Our own self-interest. So, what does that mean? We just, you know, we pick a few things to give up? No. We dethrone ourselves from, our, from the direction of what we're doing in our life. We take ourselves off the throne, denying ourselves not just things, but ourself completely, and taking it out of the picture. Now, you might say, well, that leaves an empty throne. Well, we know that the third demand puts someone back on the throne. All right? So, just bear with me. The first thing you have to do though is you have to remove yourself from that driver's seat. That's what we have to do. Deny ourselves. So am I just aimless? No. We'll talk about that in a minute. What does it mean then? We, we, must, first, we must realize that there's no co-ruling as a disciple of Christ. You can't share the seat as it were in the throne with Jesus if you're trying to you know, do this and he was trying to sit this way. You, you can't do that with Jesus together, there's only one person that sits on the throne. So we must deny ourselves. What's the second thing? Take up your cross. Now, this is a little strange because to a a Jewish ear specifically, this is not like a Jewish metaphor that they're used to. When I say take up your cross, probably most of you have some sort of idea what I mean by that. You say, you know, each of us have our cross to bear, man. You You know, take up your cross. You know, they didn't have diet soda. Okay, I'll have orange. It's fine. You know, like a... Deny myself, I'll take up my cross, and I'll do what I've got to do. Like it's a nuisance or something, and like some kind of small pain in the side, and, you know, I've got a cross to bear, I'll take up my cross. That did not make any sense to the, to the hearers here. They, have, they don't have any of that kind of stuff in their mind. Rather, in their mind, they think of what it says, take up your cross. The only cross that they know is a Roman cross, a cross of shame a cross of guilt, a cross of gore and brutality, a cross that is inglorious and painful, full of punishment, meant you are some sort of criminal. This is the cross that they think of. In our our day and age, it might be more helpful to say something like this. Put on the orange jumpsuit, the handcuffs, climb up into the electric chair. Or climb the scaffolding, Put the noose around your neck and tie your hands behind your back. Or prepare the syringes, strap yourself to the table, or you're ready for lethal injection. Does that help at all? Take up your cross is not trivial. This is really serious. Take up your cross, follow me. He's telling his followers, prepare for and embrace death, a painful Ugly, shameful, inglorious, bloody death. Be ready for that, and if you're going to be my follower, embrace it, because that's who you are. That's what will happen to you. Third thing, follow me. This is one pretty pretty straightforward. Um, do as I do. You aren't the leader; I am Jesus, being the one saying I am. You don't know where to go; I do. If you want to be on the Messiah's team, you must follow me. I am the leader. I am the one that deserves the seat. I am the one on the throne. I have rights to tell you what to do with your life. I told you there was a surgeon's general warning. This is not easy to swallow. No one wants to hear this. Deny yourself? Like, take myself out of the, Not just stop eating popcorn for a while or don't eat chocolate or coffee for two weeks or give up Star- I don't know. Like, that's not what we're talking about. Denying yourself, taking you off the throne, getting into the electric chair and saying, wherever you lead, Jesus, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to follow you. That's what you tell me to do. These are these three demands that we are told from Jesus, this is what you are going to do if you're going to be my, my disciple. You see, the disciples were expecting very different demands. Again, remember remember this larger picture, right? They didn't understand who he was as the Messiah. Remember, they were blind. They weren't seeing. They were stumbling. Their understanding was poor. And now these expectations about how to be a follower of him, these don't make sense. Like he's thinking, maybe they're thinking stuff like, these are the demands. You will have to be a good soldier. And uh, as we destroy everything and evil everywhere. Or the demand of, you'll have to get used to carrying around gold bricks in your knapsack. It'll be hard. You know, or um, you'll have to go away from home for a bit, or you'll have to choose which part of the world you want to rule with me as the Messiah. Like those type of demands is what they're thinking. Like this this Jesus, this not Jesus, but this Messiah is coming to do that kind of stuff. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm supposed to be involved with. Not denying myself. Not death. Not following Jesus wherever he tells me to go. In all seriousness, the demands were not at all what they thought they would be. Jesus, knowing their blindness, continues to explain and to teach. He'll now tell them why they should do these things. So number two, if you've got notes. The first one is these three demands. The second is why they should even do these things. Verse 35 through 37, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is offering this, if you understand this word, paradoxical, or like things that don't make any sense, almost like they're opposite of one another, this paradoxical principle for successfully saving one's own soul for a true life, eternal. And he knows that everyone wants this. So there's a guaranteed way to save your soul? All right, tell me about it, Jesus whoever would save his life will lose it. If I try to save my life by earthly means, I'm going to lose it. But, on the opposite side, whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. In other words, the person who is willing to give up earthly life for the sake of loyalty to Jesus is the person who will gain eternal life. These aren't necessarily tricky statements. The problem is they're hard to believe. I think we understand what he's saying. The problem is that we don't see what's long-term. None of us have seen eternal life. We don't know what it looks like or if it's even real. Rather, we know that if I give a dollar to the soda machine, I get a soda out. Well, something's more expensive than that, but... The idea is that we understand the things around us. We understand that if we work hard, we make money, we get life back in that way. If we work harder, we can get more money, we can get a bigger house, and we can fulfill ourselves here. If we were to find the right people to be around and please them, and and our life would be full with those people. It's wonderful. And we know, we kind of know this plane. Some of us know it better than others, but we kind of understand this plane. The problem is, none of us really understand what is to come. But Jesus is telling us, listen, if you try to save this soul, here, your life, right now, and do this kind of stuff and, and, and make this the best you possibly can and forsake all else that might be in the future for this right now, you'll lose your soul. You'll lose your life. But conversely, if you'll give up this earthly life, the stuff that you want or, or respect and stuff from, from those around you, if you're willing to give those up for the sake of me and the gospel... I can promise you eternal life. I can promise you life with me forever. And that will be worth it. Verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Wait, that's possible? You mean that there's more to life than what we just can see, like we've just been talking about? And we could possibly gain everything good here on earth and still lose it somehow? When we come down to it, we all know this. We all know that Bill Gates is going to die someday. We all know that those who have kingdoms will pass away someday. And then it will either be plundered or it will be inherited or it will be given away or something. They'll all die. There's more value in keeping your eternal life with God than having this temporary life and the trinkets that come around it the comfort the ease, the respect verse 37 for what can a man give in return for his soul ha think about this, Ed said something like this earlier, I was laughing to myself and it's absolutely absurd what do you think that you have that you could give to God that it would be worth it to him that you can disrespect him What do you have that you could possibly pay for your disrespect and rebellion against him? As though you'll bring a million dollars to him. Here you go. Now you'll let me in. It's like, you didn't listen to me your whole life. You didn't care what I said at all. In fact, you rebelled against me. You think this money somehow pleases me? You think somehow it will buy my favor? And I'm like, okay, my justice and glory and character, isn't, it's not that bad. I can, I'll take the million bucks. That's absurd. It's a trick question. There's nothing, there's nothing that could pay God off. Nothing this world has to offer could possibly buy eternal life. It looks, it took something (laughs) infinitely more valuable and you know this, more precious to buy the souls of men. It took perfection, the perfect sacrifice. Jesus. We know this, and the rest of Mark's story will proclaim it, that a man can do nothing to purchase his soul. And so it's suggested that eternal life with God is much more valuable than earthly life. However good it may be, however good it gets on this earth, it's not worth eternal life. Forever life, forever No growing old, being with God, being totally fulfilled and knowing Him, being in His presence for all time, for eternity. One scholar says when a person saves their earthly life, I like this, at the expense of participation in salvation provided by God, they have chosen to save something infinitely small. It doesn't really compare. Like I said, it's not surprising that you, don't, yet you, you and I understand these words, but it's very, very hard for us to believe. So, that is why we should fulfill these demands. We talk about the demands. Number one, we talk about why we should fulfill these demands. There's much more value in obeying and following Christ than in what the world has to offer. Number three, what will happen if we don't fulfill these demands? Verse 38, take a look. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. In case you are wondering what Jesus meant specifically when he said whoever would save his life back in those previous verses, I think Jesus makes it pretty clear here. The one who is ashamed of Jesus and his words is the one who's trying to save his life. Remember what happens to that guy. He loses it. Somehow, this person saves his life through being on the in team, the cool crowd, the in crowd, the ones that everyone wants to be around. To this person, what the in crowd says is far more important than what Jesus has to say. This person will gladly deny Jesus uh, to be part of the in crowd. So, I get it. None of you here today will probably ever, you know, in conversation out here specifically, throw Jesus under the bus. Never. It's a little stretch. Maybe on accident once in a while you do it. But I want you to know, probably nobody in the South will throw the name of Jesus under the bus lightly. (laughs) All right? Jesus is who he's talking to is a very different audience than what we are talking about in our context right now. If we say the name Jesus walking down the road, everyone knows at least who Jesus is. You may not believe him, they're fine, but you know. That's a different context. When, who Jesus is talking to, these people, especially as it comes along, and Mark is writing this in his time, the name of Jesus as the Christ is blasphemous. And not only that, it is persecuted. And not only that, it ends in death. You're right. You you wouldn't, you know, we probably wouldn't say those words. You know what? We'd have no persecution if we did say Jesus. But are we in any real danger of a public killing? No. We're a completely different ballgame. We know nothing of the cost to follow Jesus and and be his disciple. No one cares if you say Jesus or not. For now, for those that are listening to Jesus, martyrdom was a very real possibility. History has shown us that martyrdom and suffering for the cause of Christ wasn't only a possibility, but a dark, bloody reality. That's what happened. The real question then is, for us, so listen now, are you actually, are you truly a disciple of Jesus? Not do you name his name. Does your life show, would you identify with him if it meant losing your life? Does your life show, look at it, think about it. Does your life show that you take Jesus' demands seriously? Do you deny yourself? Have you taken yourself off the throne of your decisions? Is your life yours? Or are you willing to put the noose around your neck and put your hands behind their, on your back? And give your life for Jesus Christ. Do you have Jesus on the throne? Does he call the shots? Is he leader? Are you following him? (laughs) Does he call the shots when it comes to your career? Does he call the shots when it comes to your money? Does he call the shots when it comes to your kids? Or your free time? Or your life direction? Or fill in the blank? When these demands are not fulfilled, listen, please. When these demands are not fulfilled, it evidences a heart that when it comes down to it, is ashamed of Jesus and his words. This is really serious. Because we know that if you are ashamed of Jesus, something else is going to happen. We know that he will also be ashamed of us. The motive for denying Jesus is shame. Shame because we are not willing to be in the place where people look back down on us or our stance about Jesus. It's practical too. No one wants to be singled out. I get it. I know that sailors and Marines don't want to be talking about Jesus' sissy stuff. I get it. I know it's very practical too. Who are you following? Who is on the throne? You or Jesus? Verse 38. Jesus tells us what is going to happen to those who are ashamed of him and his words. He says, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. And when he comes in the, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is a scene of glory and judgment. This is the second coming of Christ. On that day, he will also if, if you are ashamed of him and have continued to do so, he will also be ashamed of you. It's not a good place when the judge is against you. It's not a good place. We're not talking about some sort of shame that's like, oh, like my son, Ian, don't, don't get your new Easter outfit like dirty. Come on, that's shameful. We're not talking about that kind of shame or like embarrassment or ah. Oh. We're talking about something that could put you either in eternity with in glory with him or send you to hell separate from God forever. This is denial. This is rejection. The consequences are much more fierce and they will end in eternal separation from him. But Jesus doesn't finish on this note. Alright, let's continue here. No, he wants to finish out and explain the other option. This takes us to number four. Alright? Number four is what will happen if we do fulfill these demands. So we know if we don't fulfill these demands and we're going to live this way, and we are ashamed of him, he will also be ashamed of us on the day of his coming, his judgment. But for those who do listen to him and do obey, and they're willing to deny themselves, and willing to sit in that electric chair, and willing to follow Jesus for whatever he says, the Lord of your money, the Lord of your time, the Lord of your kids, the Lord of your life, this is what he's going to tell us. Verse 1, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. After a lot of very heavy talk about what it means to be a disciple, after explaining that earthly death is to be expected, after painting the picture pretty dark, Jesus offers some reassurance. A promise that a few of them would see the kingdom of God after it had come with with power. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> and I promise you the disciples are asking the very same thing. Remember, they're still not getting it. And Jesus is teaching and teaching and they're like, whoa. This is not what I was expecting. And I do not understand what you're saying. Uh, so, so some connect this idea of, uh, of what's going on here in verse 1 to, to the, uh, the second coming of Christ. Now the problem with that is, it says some of you will see it. And the second Christ, coming of Christ has not happened yet, and the disciples are all dead, as far as I know. And, but this can't, so that's not a really good fit here. It doesn't really work. So possibly instead, others have noted that the disciples here, at least some of them, will see the, the rest of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial, the resurrection. Then they'll even see the coming of the Spirit in, in, in the church, and they'll see this, this kingdom start to grow. I like this idea. I think it's good. Most of the disciples will see the things. It also aligns with Jesus' thinking on what it means to be the Messiah. It's different than what they thought. Glory is found in the suffering and the work of the cross. His kingdom then is, you know, seen as something that is growing, just like that mustard seed idea. But there's one more thing that I think we ought to look at. I'm going to read it for you. If you have your Bible, look to the next section. And this is where Stacy's going to start in. Verse Two, chapter nine, verse two. We're going to verse eight. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents: one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what he was saying, what to say, for he was terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. We call this the transfiguration. What is happening here? Only three disciples see this, James, Peter, and John. And is it possibly that this is part of the kingdom coming in power or with power? I'd say this is probably a pretty good, at least partial view of something like this. Something that's going to happen in the future, the second coming of Christ, long eschatological look, what's going to happen in the end when Jesus wins and defeats all of Satan and all his enemies and all evil forever. All that's to come, but he shows something right here that's incredible. He goes up to this mountain God comes in this cloud. Moses and Elijah are there. Again, I'm not going to give you all the details because Stacy's got some... I can't wait to hear him back here and not me. But uh, he's going to come back and explain this a lot better. But I want us to see it. This is a little piece, a little picture that these disciples get to see, a part of what it means to see the kingdom of God coming with power. Yes, in part, that is what is happening in the transfiguration. This kingdom is not... Again, they walk back down from the mountain. So it's just a glimpse. It's not the whole thing. The point here, though, as the whole, why is Jesus telling disciples about this event? This is about encouraging those who will give up their lives for Jesus on earth. Back to our main line here. He's encouraging them. They have a wonderful destiny to be with the one who is the ruler of this incredible kingdom. The one that is coming with power. This is the one that they will be with. So we made it through. What's our main point today? Jesus' demands are serious. I don't think I need to re preach it. I'm like struck when I read these words and I understand what it means for my own life, my own selfishness, and my own enthronement of myself. Brothers, sisters, we can't do this. We must deny ourselves. We must sit in that electric chair, put the noose around your neck, be ready to die. And follow after Jesus Christ. He is the leader. He is the king. Follow after him in everything that he has to say. They are not the demands that disciples were expecting. Jesus is still rocking their world. He continues to do it. These demands require them to give up their lives. This is not the Messiah they were looking for. And this is not the life of discipleship that they were dreaming of. And For you and me. The message couldn't be simpler. It's the same. Deny yourself. Put the noose around your neck. Follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, please help us to understand. May we clearly see what you're doing and who you are and what you want us to do. And may we understand that our life is not about this plane, this life, this jobs. But rather, Lord, help us to understand that it's about you and giving up our life for you and knowing you and finding our fulfillment and satisfaction in you. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you, Jesus, for giving yourself for us, your disciples. May we live in respect of that that our lives might be a living sacrifice back. We cannot pay for our salvation. You have done that. Be glory in the cross of Christ. And what you've done, in Jesus' name.